Hey, welcome back. Uh, it's Business of Film, episode number 32. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. All right, this episode, a lot of tactical and strategic information in the world of music and music publishing. I've got on the show today David Steinberg. He is one of the premier entertainment lawyers uh, in the nation. He represents some of the largest bands in rock and roll. He is an amazing guy. And what I love about David is his ability to simplify what is a very complicated subject. If you've ever gone out to license music uh, for your film or hired a composer, and all of a sudden you're dealing with uh, composition rights, master recording rights, synchronization rights, public performance rights, and royalties, and all this jargon, it gets pretty confusing pretty quickly. It is an area of specialized focus, and I wanted to get somebody on the show to really just take it apart and put it back together again in a way that makes sense, and David does that for us. And what we've got for you at the end of the show is a special giveaway. We talk a, we talk a little bit about it during the podcast. I will get into it uh, a little bit more after the show and how you can get a hold uh, of this giveaway. So uh, stick around to the end of the show, and yeah, there will be some, uh, some free stuff uh, to hand out uh, for you, for our listeners. And uh, if you go to the uh, site, crafttruck.com backslash BOF32. In the show notes, there will also be more information there as well. So let's just dive in. David Steinberg and the world of music. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. Uh, David Steinberg, uh, I, I've known you now, I don't know, how long has it been? 10 years? Oh, it's got to be something like that, yeah. Yeah, so so for those people who are listening, uh, David and I go go way back. Uh, I worked with David for for many 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 years, and he has been I, I guess I could say my conciliary on a number of issues uh, in the film business. Uh, and I just thought for this episode, David, I wanted to bring you on the show because to me, you are the music guy. You are the the person who knows music and the legal side of music more than anybody else I know in the business. So okay, why, why don't we just kind of just start with a little bit about your history. Um, sure. And just, you know, just uh, your your affiliation to music in general and how kind of how that brought you to to combine that with, with law. I just want to kind of get, get that out there. Sure. Well, I, I uh, was a musician myself for a long, long time. I started as a kid. Um, and by time I was about 17 years old, I was already touring as, uh, as a drummer um, with various bands. And I did that up until the time that I was about 25. Um, so I had about eight years of making records, touring, doing a lot of traveling. Um, I lived in West Hollywood for a while. Um, I had extended stays in uh, New York, in Vancouver, even though I'm a Toronto guy. So my my association with the music industry really goes back um, to the mid-1970s, mid-late 1970s, which is when I, I be, first became involved as a musician. Um, after that, uh, when I decided I was going to go get a real job, uh, in the 80s, um, I went to law school and graduated, um, I think it was 1989, if I remember correctly. And, um, and I've been doing this, I've been a lawyer since uh, 1991. 
So you, would you consider your, your specialty music then, or that's just always been sort of the love and passion that you brought to, to law in general? Well, I've always had a, an entertainment practice, and music has always been a part of it. Um, so I would say that right from the very beginning, it was obvious that I was going to do some kind of music work just because I had come out of that industry and I was familiar with a lot of the concepts and, um, had been beaten up badly enough as an artist, um, that other artist friends of mine started to come to me when I became a lawyer, uh, to, to help them out. So I've always had a music component to my practice, um, but I would say if, if I add up sort of 100% of it, it's probably, I don't know, 35% music-based, and the rest of it film and television-based. So this is, music can be a very complicated and mysterious world. Getting music into films, understanding how music relates to films, understanding uh, how music relates to filmmakers and their back end, and how royalties and residuals work. It's this very nebulous, murky world. Can you just, from as big a, as big a picture as you can, from kind of that 30,000-foot view, just demystify it a bit for us. Just walk us through the, the, the big elements that, that, compose, uh, that compose, I guess, a licensing and getting music into a film. Okay. I mean, one, one thing that I always mention when I, when I speak on these topics, because I work so much in film and music and on a lot of projects that combine those things, for instance, um, one of my clients is Banger Films, who do a lot of documentary work uh, in the music area. So we've done Rush, we've done Iron Maiden, um, Alice Cooper, uh, metal, the Metal Evolution series on MTV, Headbangers Journey, etc. Lots of music licensing that was required for those films because they're they're music based. So in many occasions, uh, or on many occasions, sorry, I'm I'm involved in dealing with music licensing as it relates to film because I work in both of those both of those worlds. There's a ton of mystification about music because music is not only somewhat complicated in its various components, but it's got a language unto itself as well. The best way to demystify or to start demystifying it is to look at music always as, as two elements that come together to create that, that sound, that song, that score, whatever it is. There's a composition itself, Lennon and McCartney, for example, and then there's a master recording of a composition, which is the Beatles. So when I'm talking to film television people, I'll often try and get them thinking along the lines of the musical composition being like a screenplay and the master recording being like the film. And that's really the first thing that people have to get their heads around is these two layers of copyright, these two elements of copyright. And then they have to, secondly, understand that those two copyrights that make up a piece of music are often owned by different parties. So in other words, the composition component, the Lennon-McCartney component, is owned by a music publisher. And the master recording component, the Beatles, is owned by a record company. So if we're mastering... Uh, sorry, let me change that word. If we're licensing music for film... We're looking for a master use license 
and we're looking for what we call a synchronization license. The master use license for the recording itself, the synchronization license for the composition. So it's two separate components. So if you've got a, a film or a television show and you want to license a piece of music, you're going to have to get those two licenses, synchronization and master use, and you're going to have to get them from the music publisher or the record company. Now, one area where people sometimes get confused is if we're dealing with music that doesn't have a publisher necessarily attached or a record company necessarily attached. It could be that you're licensing the music of an indie band who owns their own songs and owns their own masters, which just simplifies the whole thing because it's a one-stop shop. So in that case, even though, it's, yeah. you know, even though it's still the two components. Right, so in that case, the indie band would own both the composition and the master recording. Correct. And in that case, it just makes the licensing so much simpler. And if you're commissioning music for a film or for a video, like, for instance, when you guys produced um, When Jews Are Funny, that's what it's called, right? That is what it's called, yeah. It's a great movie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, when, I haven't, haven't actually uh, mentioned it yet on the podcast. You, 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 you've just outed me for being a producer, David. <laughs> I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Did, 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 did you like it? I thought it was fabulous um, and had some very, very funny stuff in it. Um, but when you did that film, you had a score composer, a music composer, um, that wrote music for your movie. And in that case, rather than licensing the music, you probably entered into an agreement where um, you might have acquired some of the publishing or you might have acquired some of the master recordings. And if you didn't, then you would have been licensing it, but doing it in that one agreement, in your composer agreement. So when people are, in, are on the film and TV side, and they're actually commissioning somebody to write music for them or engaging somebody to do so, they're going to have a negotiation concerning who's going to own the publishing, who's going to own the masters, whether it's going to be the production company or the composer, and they're going to work that out in accordance with a whole bunch of different uh, issues that might come into play. So let's now... Start peeling away some of the layers here with respect to the negotiations and what goes into that. Because certainly each half, as it were, is uh, 100% of that half. So you can take a look at it and go, the composition is, uh, the, or the publishing rights uh, is, is 100% of that half. And the master recording is 100% of that half. So at that point, uh, my understanding is that you can then subdivide each half into further component pieces and that the rights for those can, that, can then get further sp split up even further. So when you're entering into a negotiation with, say, uh, an owner of a piece of music or somebody who you're going to hire to compose a piece of music, can you talk to me a little bit about how those rights get further split, especially the publishing rights? Uh, in terms of, you know, who owns what pieces of those? Sure. The, the way you have to look at publishing rights is they are automatically owned by the creator of the music when the person has actually created it. 
So when Lennon and McCartney sat down in the living room and wrote a song, they actually own their publishing. They own the copyright and the composition immediately upon its creation. And when we talk about publishing, we're really talking about copyright. We're saying that he or she who owns the publishing actually owns the copyright and the composition. So you have the, the writer create the piece of music. They own the copyright unless they assign it or sell it to someone else. The reason there's so much excitement about the publishing side of things when we're talking about film and TV is because that's where most of the money is made from the music component in a film or television production. So I'll explain that. If you're a film producer and you commission a composer to write, let's say, 35 minutes of music that's going to be scattered throughout that film, when that film goes into theaters or goes onto television and gets exploited, there are public performance royalties, which is one of the copyrights that attaches to music. And those public performance royalties in Canada are administered by an entity called SOCAN. And SOCAN is a not-for-profit organization that um, although it takes a small administration fee, it's technically owned by its members, and it's there to issue licenses and collect royalties that are generated by public performance of music. So just to so, put, uh, just a quick pause there. Um, so for anybody who's listening in the U.S. or the U.K. or Australia, there are sister organizations like this in every country. So what are the organizations, just out of curiosity, in the U.S.? and the UK, if you know them off the top of your head? Sure. So in the United States, it would be ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, S-E-S-A-C. So it would be one of those three organizations. SOCAN in Canada is a sister organization to ASCAP in the United States. And for the UK, we'd be talking about the PRS. So it's, it's the kind of situation where you're going to find a performing rights organization in, in most territories of the world, if not all of them, and in many cases, they're affiliated. So in other words, if I'm a member of SOCAN, I'm a publisher, or I'm a member of ASCAP, I don't then have to become a member in Germany of GEMA or other societies around the world all that is funneled through and is administered by SOCAN. So when you look at a SOCAN statement, you'll actually see that some of the money might come from Scandinavia, some of it com might come from Japan, etc., and it all comes through the funnel of SOCAN. Right. So I, I didn't mean to take you too far off track there. It's just that a lot of our listeners are also in the U.S. and the U.K. And so as you talk about SOCAN specifically, I just wanted to let people know that there are similar organizations in your jurisdictions, wherever you happen to live, that you could contact for further information. So anyways, I was taking a little bit off the train from public performance rights and uh, the royalties there, too. Yeah, not a problem. So that's really the, the most important part of the ownership of music rights when we're talking about film and TV is um, 
is the publishing aspect and specifically the public performance royalties that, that one can get. Now, you have to keep in mind that the way public performance royalties are split at source is 50% between the publisher and the writers. So this is very important to keep in mind. If you hire a score composer on a film, that score composer is going to be entitled to what we call his or her writer's share under the performing rights split. So that means if a dollar is made as a result of the film being broadcast on free television, let's say, of that dollar, 50 cents is going to go to the writers and 50 cents is going to go to the publisher of the composition. And that's an automatic split at source. So even if we own the publishing, even if you're a film producer that has purchased the publishing and thus the public performance right and royalties that come from that, 50% is always still going to go to the writer. So let's talk about that, uh, that 50% then that is not automatically on its way to the writer. That is an element of both discussion, uh, negotiation, and also whether or not there are any third parties that may be able to get their hands on that bit of money. Because at the end of the day, a producer would look to potentially collect revenue from that uh, or use that as a source of revenue uh, for its film. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about best practices is the way I'll frame it for how one should think about the publishers or, or the publishing rights uh, that are available that aren't automatically the writer's share. Sure. Um, in many of those negotiations, um, and I will explain it from both sides of the fence, from the producer's side and from the composer's side, um, in many of those negotiations, it turns on things like what type of fees are being paid up front to a composer, um, and that being taken into consideration as to whether a composer is going to be able to keep any of their publisher's share or any of their publishing. So let me put that in plain English. I want to hire a score composer. Normally, uh, they would expect a fee of, let's say, $100,000. And I say to them, I don't have that much. I only have 20000 Well, that composer may say to me, okay, listen, I will do your score for 20000 but I am going to keep all the publishing rights. Meaning, um, if there's back-end payments, public performance royalties, etc., that are going to come from this project, they're coming to me. 100% of it's coming to me. Why? Because you're not paying me enough up front to justify the sale of my publishing. Now, that may work fine. In other words, the film producer may say, look, I really want this person to be doing the writing, and I don't care about the money uh, on the public performance rights. I just want to have them do the score. So I don't have enough money to justify getting publishing as well, so I'm just going to go with this. On the other hand, if the fee is 100000 and the producer is going to pay that fee, the producer's probably going to say, look, as part of that fee, I have to have the publishing. 
there may be situations where the producer has to have the publishing. In other words, they might have a distribution agreement or a deal with a studio that requires them to purchase the publishing as, as one of the requirements um, of delivery of the, of the film or television show. In other words, you, you're going to go and get the publishing rights, and then you're possibly going to turn them over to that studio that's buying your film. That can happen as well. So it really turns on the, on the facts of the specific situation, but in many cases, it's related to the fees, whether or not we can afford the fees, whether or not they're high enough to justify a sale of the publishing along with everything else that's being delivered by the composer. Uh, by the way, I should mention, the reason why I do this podcast, David, aside from the fact that this information is so incredibly valuable, it's because it's like getting free legal advice. I mean, this is great. No, I mean, honestly, <laughs> anybody who's listening to this should actually really, you know, if, if you're not taking notes, go back and start over. I guarantee you will forget most of what David just said. Uh, but, but <laughs> no, I should tell you, I should tell you, Jesse, I have a, a paper that I wrote a few years back about all of this. And I can uh, send you a copy of that if you want, and you can provide a link to it. It's, a, it's kind of a, a lay person's guide to how publishing works, especially in the film and television areas. That's fantastic. I will definitely do that. And so anybody who's listening to this, they can go over to crafttruck.com. Uh, this is going to be episode 32, so go to crafttruck.com slash BOF32, and I will provide there uh, in the show notes uh, for you a link to this uh, this layperson's document, um, which is great. Um, so let's, but let's actually continue along with uh, the complexities of music. So... When it comes to collective, so, okay, well, let's just kind of take a step back here. We've got to the point where we've uh, licensed some music. We've got uh, possibly a combination of, of music that we've licensed for our show and a composer. Uh, if we've licensed music for our show, we've uh, at this point entered into uh, a sync contract for synchronization rights, i.e. the composition. We've entered into a master recording license. Uh, for the um, uh, for the master rights, uh, we've hired a composer. Uh, we've probably done some negotiation then on uh, who owns the public performance rights, and so all that's uh, hopefully done, obviously with uh, with the help of uh, of, of your lawyer, because I guarantee you're going to need contracts to enter into all these types of agreements. So you've got all this stuff down. You've made the movie. It's out in the world. Now what? What happens next when it comes to trying to track down those rights, collect revenues? What is that process? Okay. Well, there are a couple of things um, that have to be done right away. One is the rights that you have um, on the publishing side, or if you're a composer on the composition side, is they have to be registered with that Performing Rights Society. So if we have a composer, let's say in the United States, they should be a member of either ASCAP or BMI, and in Canada, a member of SOCAN. Same with a publisher. 
and then the music has to be properly registered. So what happens when you've got these registrations is let's say a, a television station uh, plays or sorry, broadcasts the film or the TV show. They have to file what's called music cue sheets. And what happens is on those music cue sheets, every little piece of music that's embodied in the film or the television show gets reported to the Performing Rights Society. So in other words, SOCAN or ASCAP, BMI, they get this information in, they see how many broadcasts of the film or television show have been made, they line it up with those cue sheets, and then they pay royalties based on how many plays, where, what time of day, etc. So the first thing that has to be done is, is that registration to ensure that there's a linkage between the performance of the music and the society that's going to be collecting. That's the most important thing. In certain cases, people will elect to do deals with publishers for administration of these rights. In other words, some people just get confused or overwhelmed by it, or they've got so much music that they don't know how to deal with it and they don't want to, and they go and they do administration agreements with, uh, with publishers. And they say, here, you guys do it. You guys make sure everything's done right. You guys make sure that we get our royalties, and in exchange, you can take a percentage of what we make. So who would be just some examples of maybe a couple publishers that people might have heard about? Well, certainly major publishers will do this. Um, you know, I had a, a film a year or so ago that was being distributed by Sony Pictures, and we ended up doing an administration deal for the film music with their affiliated music publishing company. So all the majors have um, have publishing divisions or companies that are somehow um, related or affiliated with them. Um, there's Warner Chapel, um, there's Universal, etc. And then there are very strong, large independents like Olay, um, who are based in Canada, but have offices in the United States uh, as well. And they do admin deals, but they also do deals where they, where they purchase copyrights, as do some of the other publishers. So there are situations where you might have a, a film company or a TV company who's built up a large enough library of music rights that publishers may actually want to buy them. So uh, those are probably fairly case-specific examples, but for, say, an independent producer who's producing one, two, maybe three films over the last, I don't know, five years... What would be your advice in terms of should they be looking to enter into agreements into publishers? Uh, is that to the benefit of the producer to do that? Uh, I, I know that 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 question in and of itself is a little bit like how long is a piece of string, but what would be your starting point for thinking about whether or not one should even enter into or consider entering into discussions with a publisher? Um, I think it's related to the amount of expertise that you have available. In other words, if you, if you own some publishing and you, you just simply don't have the expertise to understand it at all, you might be able to go and learn it, 
but it could be really difficult and time consuming and you might not have the the you know the wherewithal to want to do it in which case it could it could be helpful to go to a publisher for that kind of assistance um you know in in certain respects it's like going to anybody with expertise in an area um to help so that you don't have to learn it yourself so on the other hand sorry yes sorry no 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 please please uh, continue yeah, I was saying, on the other hand, if you've got a very small um, library of music, you should be able to hire somebody to come in and just give you some temporary advice just to make sure that you're set up properly. But I would say if you've got, um, if you've got some copyrights and you've got some programs that are being exploited worldwide um, and you don't have the expertise, it could be a good idea to speak to a publisher, especially on the worldwide collections. So I just want to be clear about what it is that we're talking about in this instance. And it's all about the collection of royalties that a producer would be due. So the, the, the job of the publisher in this respect is all about getting you, the producer, back your money. Correct. Making sure that things are registered properly are being reported properly. Um, there's a little bit of policing and enforcement that can be done by a publisher. But let's put it this way. If I had one film and uh, I was exploiting it only in Canada or only in the United States, um, I might not need a publisher because the only, the only thing I'm really doing is making sure that I'm registered with one of the performing rights societies, and then I'm going to wait and I'm going to get my check, which usually are coming on a quarterly basis. But you have to have at least enough expertise to get your stuff properly registered at the, at the performing rights society to even get that far. So you need to have at least that amount of, of sophistication. So let's just shift shift gears a bit. I think we, we've spent a considerable amount of time just kind of laying uh, some very foundational stuff with respect to, to music and clearances. What are the things that you see that go wrong? Where do producers, you know, screw things up, for lack of a better word? Uh, and, and what should people be looking out for uh, when they're first, you know, thinking about music for their film? Um, I think there's, there are mistakes that are often made right at the beginning of the process by not understanding what's about to happen. So one of the things that I'll do with producers of all shapes and sizes and all levels of sophistication is at the beginning of the project, I'll ask them, what, what do you anticipate happening on the music side? In other words, we know that there's a lot of work that has to be done on the film in general. There are distribution agreements, there's financing, etc. I will ask them as part of the whole process, what, what do you anticipate on music? And a producer will usually have a very basic understanding of the parameters of where they're going. For instance, they might say to me, um, we're not going to license any songs. We're not going to license any outside stuff. Um, we just have this one composer who's going to come in and do, you know, some background music for us. Or the producer might say to me, you know what, we're just going to use stock music. We're just going to license stock music. We're not hiring anybody. So it, it can range. In other situations, they might say to me, 
oh, actually, the film is very music heavy, and we want to go license a whole bunch of, you know, music from the 70s. We need a bunch of classic rock for this thing. And I'll say, oh, okay. So if, if that's the case, I want to sit them down, make sure that they fully understand what they're about to embark upon. And my next question, if they told me that they wanted to do a lot of music licensing, would be, what's your music budget? Do you have a music supervisor that's going to help you get these licenses? Are they being realistic about cost, et cetera? And do they understand about synchronization licensing for the publishing side, master use licensing for the recordings? Do they even get it? Are they being realistic about the type of music they want? So if I get a call from somebody who's making uh, a film for a million dollars and they're expecting to be using a bunch of music by the Beatles and the Kinks and the Who, I'm going to be telling them that's highly unlikely. And this is why it's highly unlikely. Um, on the other hand, if they've been to the rodeo before and they kind of get it, they know what's going to happen, they may, they may say, well, you know, we're going to see how we do with our budget. We're going to see how much we have left in post, but we know how much these things cost. We know how we're going to attack it. We've done it before. So I will always speak to producers up front to see what kind of parameters we're going to have to deal with on the music side. And if all they're doing is hiring a score composer, the big questions there are, okay, good. Have you worked out a fee? And have you talked about publishing yet? And depending on the answers, we'll go down that road and, and make sure that that negotiation is handled properly. Well, you raise a very important point when it comes to music uh, budgets and uh, being able to license songs that you might want for your film but don't realize how much these things cost. Now, I'm just going to throw something out there, and I'd love to get your, uh, your opinion on whether or not this hypothesis is uh, anywhere close to the benchmark. But when the music industry radically shifted about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, probably even more than that now. Uh, but the, the entire economics of the music business changed. One of the places that uh, people in the music business went to actually make money was from licensing their music to film and television. That yeah. being said, it drove up the cost substantially on being able to get stuff into your film. So, uh, I mean... When it comes to the cost of just, you know, if, if, if you're listening to something on the top 40 or there's a, uh, something that's playing out there right now that, that you want to get into your film, odds are that's going to be in the, the ten, I'm guessing here, but that as a result, it'll be something like in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, it, it's, well, you're bringing up a couple of things. One is, is the, uh, the pricing on unlicensing music in and of itself. And the other is what's happened to the market. So why don't we talk about what's happened to the market first? Um, several years ago, before the music business really changed, as you've described it, licensing for film and television was, or for television commercials was a very tricky thing. A lot of artists saw that as a frontier that they simply were not going to go into. You know, we will never have our music being used to sell automobiles or butter or cheese. We're not going to let it happen. And what's really happened since 
those days is it's not only become acceptable to license your music for commercials, film, TV, it's become encouraged by the copyright owners and a lot of people see it as a way to break artists. A lot of people see it as a way to make serious money. So if you think about 20 years ago of the concept of The Who licensing a song to be used as the theme for a television show, I think it would be laughable. But now we see it as a wonderful licensing opportunity Many of the artists see it that way, the publishers, etc., because there's excellent money to be made on the licensing fees and on those public performance royalties that I described earlier. And it's a way of keeping your back catalog alive if it's older music. If it's newer stuff, it's just a, it's just a, a, a way of getting it out there even more into the faces of the, of the consumers. And people like that. It's not seen as a cheesy thing anymore. It's not seen as a sellout anymore. It's just a way to exploit your music, get it out there, and make money from it. I mean, because of my, my generation, um, which goes back a little bit, I was a little bit shocked to recently see that ACDC's Back in Black was being used for an Interact commercial. <laughs> Back in Black is, you know, ACDC's homage to their lead singer, Bon Scott, who died, who OD'd, right? Right. And here it's being used in a financial services commercial. Well, the fact is, at a certain point, you say, look, let's stop taking ourselves so seriously. Yes, that's what Back in Black was. But you know what? If we can make huge amounts of money from the licensing, and, and our families are going to make money and benefit from it, et cetera, et cetera. Who cares? License it. You know, we don't have to have to starve ourselves or let our music be forgotten or whatever the case may be simply because we don't want to license it. So there's been a real change in that regard. Okay, so that, that hits the marketing aspect of it. And how does that dovetail into the pricing? Okay, so on the pricing, there are very, very loose standards for how much certain types of music cost. We generally have what's called um, an MFN, Most Favored Nations, arrangement that's done for the publishing side, the sync license, and the master use recording side. So the way the Most Favored Nations thing works is if we can license a song for $10,000, generally what happens is it's MFN between the two sides, which means 5000 for the composition, for the publisher, 5000 for the recording artist or the record company. So it's generally split in half in that way. Now, in terms of the valuation, that really is how long is a piece of string because it depends on a whole bunch of different things. It depends on how big the song is, how popular it is, how um, possible it is to even license it. Because some artists may have an approval right over the publishing 
and may say, you know, I never want to see my music used and this kind of thing or that kind of thing. I'm okay if you want to use it as a theme song for CSI, but I'm not necessarily okay if you want to use it, you know, for, for a perfume ad. So there are situations like that that will affect pricing. There are certain acts and artists where it's just probably going to be cost prohibitive for a lot of people. Um, like, don't be talking about the Beatles and the Stones if you've got 10000 bucks, because it's not going to happen. The only way you're going to get that kind of thing is if they have some specific reason why they want to be involved in your film. So there are situations like that that sometimes occur. You know, somebody might know someone in a big band or whatever, or someone in a big band wants to be involved. Let's say it ties into a political cause that they have or a, or a, or a charitable cause. You know, maybe it's a, a, a movie about, cere- about, about someone who has cerebral palsy, and Neil Young might say, I want to put some of my music in that because it's something that's close to my family situation, and I don't mind lending my voice to that type of film. That sort of thing can sometimes happen, and that can affect the pricing as well. But generally, if you speak to um, a music supervisor or an entertainment lawyer that works in that part of the business, they can generally tell you what kind of challenges you're going to have, depending on what your wish list is. So, remember how I told you at the beginning, 40 minutes would fly by really, really quick? It Don't is, tell me that was 40 minutes. That was 40 minutes. I feel oh, like boy. we barely got started, and already, yeah. went, <laughs> already we've blown through it. I, I mean, there's just so much to cover, just to even cover the, the basics. You, you hardly even have time to, to get into it. But I think, you know, what you said there at the end is really, really important. Having a music supervisor that understands the business, that understands, uh, you know, how to go about entering into these contracts, having a lawyer that can review those contracts for you. You know, those are, those are critical, critical things uh, that, you know, if, you're, if your film is music heavy, uh, I, I would assume, David, that you'd be on side to agree that, that you know, without those, because I, I remember the first film I, even, uh, I ever made, I tried to do it all by myself. And we had something like, I don't know, uh, 15 to 20 different pieces uh, of, of music that we wanted to license. And it got to the point where I was faxing, I was literally at my house faxing uh, music contracts over and sync contracts over. And it was just, it was just becoming nuts. It was like, it is, such yeah. a, it, it is a big, big job. It's a big job. And it's made easier if you have people involved that actually understand it. There's a, there's a, a really funny thing about the, the film and TV industry, which is there's sometimes a reluctance to bring in experts to deal with certain things. You know, people like to try and do their own accounting, their own directing, their own writing, their own licensing. Now, I know that money can sometimes be an issue, and that, that can sort of sometimes be the deciding factor as to whether you can get the expertise or not, but... You know, I would never be out there as a lawyer doing mining deals. I don't know how they work and I don't know what they are. But it's amazing how frequently you'll see people try and dabble in the entertainment space. And there's a lot of time wasting that goes on as a result. You know, so if you have, 
your local family law lawyer or real estate lawyer come in and try and deal with your music issues, they're not going to have a clue what's going on. So you really have to get somebody who understands this stuff, um, at the very least on a supervisor, maybe on the lawyer side. You definitely want a lawyer to look at the licenses to make sure that you're getting what you need. There have been all kinds of horrific examples of people that have not had proper licenses done. And lo and behold, they end up having problems when they're trying to sell their films or license them or broadcast them. So it's just one of those tricky areas, which is, you know, what you said really at the top of the conversation, which is it's a, it's a, a tricky area of the business that is, is very mystical to a lot of people. It's mystical just because it's got a lot of complexity. And there are people out there that understand that complexity and can help navigate you through it. That's the bottom line. Well, thanks again for you know taking the time to come on the show. Just to even give us this, this amount of foundational information is, is great. Anybody who's listening, uh, I hope you got a lot out of it. And uh, David, if people wanted to connect with you uh, about their music, uh, issues, concerns, questions, what would be the best way uh, for them to, uh, to get in touch with you if, 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 they need a, if they need a lawyer to help them through some of this stuff? If they're in trouble, they can drop me an email at david.steinberg at dentons.com. Awesome. All right, David. Thank you so much for your time. All right. No problem, man. All right. So that was pretty cool. Uh, David, he's awesome. Uh, if you're listening, thank you for coming on the show. So as we promised uh, at the top of the show, uh, we would have for you a giveaway. And as we alluded to uh, when speaking to David, he has put together this uh, uh, this amazing compilation uh, information package about music publishing. It goes over everything we talked about in the show and a lot more. Uh, as you probably noticed, we, we were 40 minutes into the show and we hardly got uh, into really some of the, even the, the meteor stuff about music publishing and music rights. Uh, it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. So David has put together, and I want to thank David for, for giving this uh, to Craft Truck uh, and allowing us to, to give it away to our listeners. Uh, it is a very detailed, comprehensive guide to music publishing and working with composers and licensing music and pricing and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's just jam-packed full of goodness. So when he offered to give this to us, I was excited to be able to share it with you. So head on over to the site. It is crafttruck.com slash BOF32 and uh, there'll be a, a download link there and you can grab a hold of it. So uh, thank you, David, for giving that away. Uh, I think you'll find this, uh, this, this information package really, really very uh, tactically useful to you. It's something you're going to go back to uh, just as a reference guide. Uh, I've already read it three times, and I'm still confused. Uh, no, uh, it, it <laughs> you, you literally need a music supervisor to sometimes pull apart this stuff and put it back together again. But what's great about this package that David has is it really is an amazing reference guide. So uh, it's yours. Uh, crafttruck.com slash uh, BOF32 uh, and uh, thank you for listening I really really appreciate it uh, we're 32 episodes strong right now and we are just going to continue to rock and roll so we'll see you next week and uh, that's it thanks for listening cheers <laughs>